pastors here. If you're new to Kingsway, just welcome. And uh, I'm born in, in Zanesville, Ohio, raised in Northeast Ohio, around this little town called Akron, which if you're old enough, you remember Akron as the rubber capital of the world because all the good years, good riches, and everybody used to be there. But let's be honest, the only reason you've ever heard of Akron is because of LeBron James. So... The problem with growing up in Northeast Ohio is uh, you basically have two teams to choose from. You could choose from the Pittsburgh teams, but it's across the border and it's a little ways away, or you could choose the Cleveland teams. Now, when I, before I was born, that was actually a cool thing to do because the Cavs, the Browns, and the Indians were all good teams. But in the 40 years of life that I've had, that's not been true until 2016. So the Cavs, I promise I'm going somewhere, the Cavs, have finally broken the streak. My Indians are in the playoffs. They're up two to nothing over the Boston Red Sox. I am hoping, dare I say praying, I don't think it'd be biblical, but I am hoping that the Indians play the Cubs in the World Series so that one of us, for crying out loud, can end our drought. Like, it has to happen. (laughs) Or it'll be the first World Series that ever ends in a tie and they just give it to both of them. I don't know, anyway. So with any, any luck at all, this could be the year that Cleveland not just wins one championship, but wins two, and my Buckeyes, dare I say it, are still undefeated this year. Now, I say all of this because there's one team that, you know, refuses to let me down. They fulfill expectations year in, year out. In fact, the other day I was talking to somebody and they were talking about what's wrong with the Cleveland Browns. You know, they're constantly changing their GM, they're constantly changing their coaching, they're constantly trading their star players away to other teams for them to use, their constant turnover, their things are just constantly changing. And I said, well, except there's one thing that never seems to change, their record. They are terrible. And I'm trying to help my son understand this. My second son absolutely adores football and he asks me, dad, since the Buckeyes win all the time, do you think they could beat the Browns? It's a fantastic question. ESPN actually took up this question, and I tend to agree with Desmond Howard on ESPN. ESPN said, absolutely not. There's just no way. I mean, you got to realize the pros are made up of the best of the best of the best of everybody in college football. They're all coming together. And I was trying to tell my son this. I said, son, these are grown men on the Browns. You know, these aren't college kids. And these are at least the best of the worst. You know, these are the... There's no way the Buckeyes win. So my son and I are going through football cards the other day, and uh, we're just having a good time looking through. I love collecting sports memorabilia. And he, he's got these two Browns cards, and uh, in his mind, they're playing each other. And I'm kind of half paying attention to him, half paying attention to these cards. And he's, he says, look, Dad. And I said, oh, yeah, cool. And he says, it's the Browns against the Browns. I said, oh, yeah. And he said, who's going to win? <laughs> and I said, because I think I'm funny, I said, son, this is probably the only way that the Browns can win. (laughs) And my wife, not to be all dumb, she walks in and she says, nah, the Steelers will still find a way to beat them. (laughs) I used to love you. I'm just kidding. Here's why I say that. Sometimes it just feels good to laugh, doesn't it? Sometimes it just feels good to get out. Did you know that to be human is to have emotion? So uh, this past week, I visited a lady in our church um, just going through a tremendously difficult season, just tremendously difficult, and just kind of numb from all the pain. And, uh, and I just said, you know what? It's okay to not have to put on a facade. It's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay that way. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be sad, and it's okay to laugh. Scientists have actually told us, that literally true, that if you have the desire to cry and you hold it back, it actually stresses out your body. Men, think about that. You ever watch Rudy? I don't know what's wrong in here. Allergy season. I don't know why Rudy gets gets me every time. Anyway, I've heard. And um, the other one is laughter. 
It is so good and healthy for your body to laugh. And so sometimes we feel like laughing, but we feel guilty because somebody died or somebody's sick, like we should laugh. No, it's good. You got to get it out. You got to laugh, which is why on October 27th, we are bringing in two comedians here to our church. One uses magic to create humor. The other one uses music to create humor. It's going to be a blast. Our hope is to have a thousand people in here, 500 Kingsway people bringing 500 of their friends. That's our hope. Of course, you could choose not to do that, but that's not the reason we created this event. So our hope is that you will bring a friend. The cost is two tickets for $15, not 15 each, two for 15. The goal is you buy one and give one to a friend. 15 bucks is very reasonable, basically 750 a piece, but it's 15 bucks. If you walk in and say, I only want one ticket, we're still going to charge you $15. We don't care what you do with the other ticket. Give it away to somebody, bring them, go hand it to uh, uh, an employee somewhere who works here. Right out here today, you can buy your ticket. You can do it online. You can do it here. You can give us cash, give us check. You can give us your credit card, uh, but I recommend you give us the number. Um, so I'm not funny, which is why you should come to the event. See, that's how that works. What I want to do real quick, though, is I'm going to give away these two tickets real quick. And since I tried throwing them in practice, thought maybe I'll throw it out there. It, it, that one actually went the furthest yet. That's my record. Um, now I'm going to give away one ticket. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm going to give away two tickets to the first Raiders fan who comes down here and picks up that ticket and gets this one. Oakland Raiders fan. Anybody in the room? Oakland Raiders? None? Over here, first one down. Oh! You got that one over there? Now, why are you a Raiders fan? Really, I'm not, but I want the two tickets. Ah, he lied to me. He lied in church. That's funny right there. I can hear you are. Well, the reason I chose the Raiders is because from 2004 to 2014, there were only two teams worse than the Cleveland Browns, the St. Louis Rams and the Raiders. So for all you Raiders fans, apparently there aren't any of you here today. Uh, that's right. They don't know Jesus. Moving on. So <laughs> that's a joke, people. All right. Let's jump into our text. So in case you haven't been here, you don't know this. Our projector is out. We ordered some stuff to fix it. FedEx messed it up and they're trying to fix it, but it's not here yet. It has to run through all their channels. So that one's still down. And apparently something's wrong with our TV today. So I got to do this old school. You're going to see the words pop up on the screen and uh, no big deal, but it's going to you know, be different than usual and come back next week. We'll have a better. All right. So Philippians chapter four, Philippians chapter four. We've been in this series in the book of Philippians. And uh, here's the short version of what I've covered up to this point. It really will be short. The book of Philippians is written to the church that meets in the city known as Philippi. Philippi is this major military outpost. Essentially, the city was created uh, way, way, way back in the day. It was gifted multiple times, but it was gifted from Philip of Macedon II to his son, Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great changed his name to Philippi at that point in honor of his daddy. But over time, because he was a, a Greek man, over time as the Romans came in and went through a number of wars and battles, so by the time we get to Jesus and Paul's day, uh, it has this identity as a military outpost because what they started to do was use Philippi to take veterans and move them there and sell them land really cheap and allow them, basically it was a promotional thing like, hey, come join us, fight in these wars, do these things, you can live there. And that explains a lot when we get to the text itself and learn some things about what's going on in the city. Paul's method of spreading the gospel is he would go into a city, he would preach the gospel in the Jewish synagogues, take the Jewish believers who converted and launch a church there. But when he gets to Philippi, there's no synagogue. It takes 10 Jewish men in order to launch a synagogue in a town. So apparently, there aren't even 10 Jewish men in Philippi. That's how Greek or Roman the city is. 
But he does find in Acts 16 a woman named Lydia, and she's apparently a business owner selling purple, which is a really big deal back then, very hard to make and hard to come by. She believes and accepts Paul's uh, preaching of the gospel, good news of Jesus, and uh, she launches really the first believers. So she takes Paul and his little group of guys, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, back to her house. Her whole house believes, all the servants, kids, whatever that would mean, family members who are living with her. Apparently, she's probably a widower, which is why we never hear about her husband. And we have the first church. Shortly after that, a young girl who's filled with a demonic spirit, the demonic spirit is cast out by Paul. We believe she comes into the church, though we're not sure. And then the next story is a jailer who arrests Paul, has him beaten really severely, thrown in prison through crazy awesome circumstances. He, his whole household, his servants all come to faith too. Now we believe Luke is a part of the Philippian church. That's probably where Paul met Luke. Based off the way Paul or Luke writes in Acts 16, he changes the tenses of his words and start saying things like them versus we and us. And so we believe that's actually where they met up. We aren't sure about that. That's just what we think. And so you have this little church that's launched. It's launched in a major uh, Roman city. It's actually a colony. And uh, it's a military outpost, which is interesting in light of some of the things that Paul writes to this church. He loves them. I mean, he loves them. You look at the church of Galatia, who he loves, he's mad because they've, uh, they've, they've given up the gospel for good works. You look at the church in Corinth, he loves them, but he's mad because they've given up the gospel for sin. And so here we find the Philippian church, and it's kind of like the balance between the two. No longer are they going back to the law and self-salvation, but also neither are they turning back to sin as if it's okay. And that's why we get to Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, and Paul writes this. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you. I long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. Now, most of us, when we see the word crown, we use it in the joking context, right? Random acts of kindness. I did something nice for somebody. I just put a new crown in, or a new jewel in my crown in heaven, right? Some of you imagine this massive crown that you can't even hold up because it's so full, filled up with jewels and other things. That's not at all what Paul's talking about. Crowns in that day were a normal part of the Olympic ceremonies, and the Olympics were a really big deal. Imagine today, you know, we have all these things to distract us, these really good entertaining things, local fairs and, and uh, restaurants that are themed, and fun places and clubs, and the list goes on and on and on. All these fun things you could do, but that wasn't true back then. Your primary life was built around work and home. And so when the Olympic Games came along, along, it was a really, really big deal. For the most part, entire towns shut down except for those serving the games as everybody would gather together and enjoy the Olympic Games. And the games would usually last about five days. They would launch with a sacrifice to the god of that town and perhaps some other gods. They would literally sacrifice animals or they would sacrifice sometimes like wine or barley or things you make with barley, whatever it is, they would just sacrifice all these things, kind of pour them out in hopes and asking their God to bless the games. Each of the uh, Olympians, whether they were running a race or racing on a chariot or whether they were boxing or wrestling or whatever it is they were doing, each of them would also make a sacrifice to their God, the one they're crying out to, to help them win. And the whole point of the games was to have this attitude that I'm going to live or I'm going to win or I'm going to die. That's it. So when we think of athletics today, some of us love football way too much. Some of us worship at the idol of sports, and that's an issue for you to work out with God. But most of us, when we think of exercise, 
when we do it. Most of us think of it in the context of just enjoying it. We love to get out. We love to experience it. We want to compete. We want to win. We might be ticked off for an hour or two if we lose a pickup game, a ball on a Saturday, but we're going to get over it and move on with our day. But that wasn't true back then. If you were to compete in the games, you competed in the games to win. There was no second place. So much so that we actually have uh, an epitaph of a guy over in Alexandria. Uh, his name was Agath- Agathos Damon. He was from Alexandria. Uh, he was in uh, the Olympia Games in Greece. He says this. It says this on his, on his little tombstone. Here he died, boxing in the stadium, having prayed to Zeus for a wreath or death. Age 35, farewell. That's it. Like, well, that stinks. Because guess what? He prayed to either win or die. He didn't win. It's been said that in the boxing matches alone, that sometimes the matches would start early and they would work until late because you didn't quit until you won or you died. People who lost in the games would rarely go home, at least not on the major road. Some of them never went home again. The ones who did go home would usually go some long way around to get back home because they couldn't handle the shame of losing. The shame was so intense. But for the winners, at the end of each day of the games, they would have this huge ceremony celebrating the winners of that day, and they'd start over the next day, and there'd be a little platform, and the person would get up on that platform, and they would put on their head this little wreath, usually made of celery leaves or, or some kind of uh, olive branch leaves or the different types, depending on the particular town you were in, and that's it. I didn't say this in the other services. I forgot. You think about when Paul's talking about these wreaths, and so does John in Revelation, how quickly they fade or die. I mean, it's not even like a gold trophy today. You could, you know, keep it clean and try to keep it from rusting. It's just going to fade and die in a matter of months. And Paul looks at the church of Philippians and he says to them, now take a look again at chapter four, verse one. He says right there at the end, you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. So last week we looked at humility. Last week, we looked at how we're to model our heart, our lives, after Christ Jesus himself. But if you notice here, see, there's a problem with our English language. The word we use for pride both means something evil in the Bible, but also means something good. And the problem is our language, not the interpretation of the Bible. It's kind of like the word love, right? I mean, in the Greeks, they had four words for love to describe these different kind of emotions you feel. But men, let me just help you. If later on you're holding your wife and you kiss her on the cheek and you look at her lovingly and you say, baby, I love you. And then the football game is on and you grab a slice of cheese pizza and you look at it and say, baby, I love you. You better not mean the same thing about the cheese pizza. At least don't tell her. Either way, all right? Now, The point is, the word pride is something evil. When you are puffed up on pride, you are usually trying to save yourself. When you're puffed up on pride, you're arrogantly, haughtily looking at your life and saying, I'm awesome. Look at all that I've accumulated. Look at all the money I've earned. Look at all the things that I've done. Look at me, look at me, look at me. I'm awesome. But there's nothing wrong with looking at hard work and saying, hey, look, this is my reward for a job well done. That's exactly what Paul is doing. But he's not looking at a big building, he's not looking at a new car, he's not looking at a house, he's not looking at his clothes, he's looking at the hearts and lives of people. And he's looking at them and he's saying, you are my crown, 
In other words, one day I'm going to finish this race. I'm going to stand on the podium. I'm going to look at my Savior. I'm going to look at him, and I'm going to be wearing this crown. He's going to look at me and place the crown on my head, and the crown on my head is all of you succeeding. So that's why he says, look again, chapter 4, verse 1. That's why he says, therefore. Notice that very first word. In the English and both in the Greek, this word therefore means something. It's a connection to what was said, and it's a connection to what's about to be said. Therefore. What does a therefore mean? Anytime you're speaking, you're saying, in light of everything I just said. Well, what has Paul said? Well, chapter one, he said, you have been my partners in spreading the gospel. Thank you. Thank you for partnering with me. In chapter two, he said, I want you to continue to have the humility of Christ. Life is hard. Serve each other. Think of others as bad as yourself. No matter what their struggle is or what's going on, do this. And then in chapter three, he says this. Let's take a look. Chapter three, Philippians chapter three, verse one. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. Though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. You're like, what in the world? So if you're new at this thing called church, trying to figure out Jesus still, maybe you don't even believe in him yet. This whole thing is like, what is he talking about? Now, some of you have been Christians for a while. You may understand already, but let me just explain it to everybody. So as Paul goes around to these different cities and he plants these churches and he gets things going, what's happening is two things. Number one, the Jewish people who don't believe do not like Paul. He is ruining everything for them. And so they are often trying to kill him or have him arrested. The same is happening for many of the Gentiles who are starting to believe in Jesus because the gospel message so radically changed the people who are coming to faith in Jesus that it ruined the whole Roman system that they had built. Then add on top of that, some of the Jews who became believers couldn't just let go of their uh, Judaism. And here's what I mean by that so you understand. In the Old Testament, there are over 300 laws that God has ordained, that God has given. In addition to that, in order to help understand and apply those laws, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, some of these different leadership groups in the religious world back then, they created laws on top of those laws to explain them. I'll give an example. So God made very clear that we were to honor the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the last day of the week, Saturday. It's the day that they were supposed to set aside for rest and worship. They were supposed to just show up, love Jesus, and not work that day. And the reason you don't work that day, like Chick-fil-A, amen, is because you're remembering that everything you have came from God in the first place. You don't have to overwork and outperform for God to provide. In fact, it's the opposite. If you honor God first, then he'll take care of everything else. But what happens is the Pharisees came along and started getting asked by people, what does it mean to not work? And so they started coming up with what it means to not work. They went beyond what God's word said. They took the principles and they added rules like, well, you can't walk more than a quarter mile on Sabbath because that would be work. What? So am I supposed to count my steps? Like what if my, 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 my gate is longer than somebody else's or shorter than, that'd be mine, let's be honest, shorter than somebody else's. So they would actually measure it out. And when the Sabbath fell on the great day of atonement, they literally had to lead the goat out of town by setting up little uh, tents every quarter of a mile. And they'd hand the goat off to the next person. That person would have to stay overnight until the next day. I mean, they got so legalistic about this. 
And so what happened is these people are converting to the faith, Christianity, and these either Jewish non-converts or Jewish converts are telling them, in order to be right with God, you have to follow the Sabbath, follow these ceremonies and holidays, and you got to be circumcised. And again, you may not understand this, but God gave the sign of circumcision to Abraham and said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, and it got passed down. It's not like they weren't doing something that God commanded. It's that circumcision was never really the point. Circumcision was to point to something else. And so what Paul is saying is, go back to verse 2 now, take a look, chapter 4, verse 2. Paul is rebuking them. Look at his language. Watch out for those dogs. I mean, like, is anybody here in America hear that? You could take it down and say, Paul, you really don't have to resort to name calling. Because that's how we would respond in America, right? Paul, you're not being very kind. No, actually, what Paul is doing is he's using a biblical metaphor, an analogy. It's all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Proverbs, Deuteronomy. The idea of a dog is totally different then than it is today. And Paul is making a point. When we think of dogs, we think of an indoor animal who crawls up, licks your face in the morning, and stares you down until you get up and feed them, right? I mean, they thought, when I had a dog, that's what they did. In Paul's day, dogs weren't domesticated. And dogs were outdoor animals that were used to tear the meat off of leftover food that you didn't want to waste. So they would toss them out or the animals would find scraps of stuff. And you could often find dogs out there tearing things apart. So Paul is not being mean, but he is pointing out a truth. These people coming in who are telling you, you have to do this and you have to do that. And you got to do this. You got to do that. All they're really doing is tearing you apart from God and from each other. So now the question is, what exactly is going on? What are they saying? Well, if you read the rest of what we just read there through verse 4, what Paul is saying is, look, I above anybody ever have reason to be confident in my flesh. Paul is saying, if you know Paul's story, he was a Pharisee above all Pharisees. There is no Pharisee, no person who's ever lived who's been more moral and more religious than Paul. Paul followed the rules and taught the rules better than anybody. And that's what he's saying. If there ever was a man to have confidence in his flesh, it would be me. I am the best of the best of the best. And then you start to think, Paul, did you read chapter two of your book? This one on humility? Paul's like, no, you don't understand. Now look at verse seven. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Paul's not telling you to think he's awesome. Paul is telling you nobody worked harder than me to be right with God and to be good enough. And now I realize that all of those efforts were for naught. How could you say this? I remember when I was living in Colorado and I've told part of this story before, I was at a coffee shop, and there was this guy there, and we'd see each other a lot, and we'd just start talking. Well, it turns out he's a professor uh, at CU Boulder, the University of Colorado Boulder. And if you don't know anything about Boulder, Colorado, um, it is kind of like a, a slice of, of uh, paradise. It is absolutely stunningly beautiful, but um, they have their own little world, and they see the world their own little way um, out there. It's Woodstock 24-7. It's basically the best way to describe it, right there, surrounded by reality. And... Um, it's an amazing place to visit. So he and I just started talking and really enjoyed each other and just chatted it up. Well, sooner or later, our conversations led to God. <clears throat> I might have had something to do with that. And uh, as we're sitting there talking about God, he basically says this. He grew up Catholic. He's now 
non-practicing Buddhist, but really it's just spiritual, typical boulder. And uh, as we're talking, he started asking me about my beliefs. It was a very, very open, non-judgmental conversation. And in our conversation, it became clear that we saw the world very differently, to which then he looked at me and said, hey, that's cool, man. You know, you believe what you believe, and I believe what I believe. And I said, so what happens at the moment where what you believe and what I believe just directly go against each other? And he said, well, you can believe what you want. That's cool. I'm like, I'm not saying, like, are you and I going to draw guns and shoot each other? I'm saying, is there a chance that one of us is right and one of us is wrong? And he said, well, I don't believe in rights or wrong. I think we have created right or wrong. So anyway, he was fascinated by the conversation, and he wanted to sit down with his wife and me. And I was very open to that. So we set a time, and we met in a week or two, and we got together and had the same kind of conversation again. Well, it turns out she's got a little bit more of a Christianese background, but still is not practicing, not living out her faith. And it came up against the same point again. What you believe is right for you, what I believe is right for me. And I said, but what, if, what happens at the moment where what I believe and what you believe directly contradict each other? Can we both be right? And he said, well, you see the world the way you see it, and I see the world the way I see it. I said, okay, so let me just try to get a little deeper here. So you don't believe there's anything that's absolutely right or absolutely wrong. As long as I believe it, it's acceptable. He said, yes. I said, what if somebody came in those doors right now with a gun, walked up, took your wife, kidnapped her, raped her, and murdered her? Would you call the police? She was curious, his answer. (laughs) And he said, well, I... Well, yeah, probably. And I said, well, how can you call the police if what they believe, if that was right in their mind, then how could you possibly call the police on them? And honestly, he said, I, I don't know, I've never really thought about it that deeply. I'm like, well, your wife would probably like to know. <laughs> because there's something in you that says that's evil. But if there's nothing that's absolutely right and nothing that's absolutely wrong, then how do we determine that it's evil? I said, see, you just need to understand that I believe that God determined it was evil, and God does say it's evil, and it absolutely is evil. And I said, look, I realize I'm picking an extreme example, but I think it's a place we would all agree on. It's evil. And to be honest, guys, he struggled with actually acknowledging, because he saw the fallacy in his argument, and he kind of said, look, I've not obviously thought about this as much as you have. I said, but it's important that you do. And he said, I don't know that it is, because at the end of the day, I'm a good person. And I said, I get that. I, I said, honestly, I agree with you. I like you. I enjoy hanging out with you. You're the the friendliest customer there is in here. You're always concerned about how the cashiers are doing and the the, the baristas. You're always kind. You always tip really well. You are a very kind and generous person. However, what the Bible teaches is that all of us, though, have sinned and turned away from God. I said, and the reality is what sin means is it means it's a direct offense against God. We've done something that God has asked us not to do. And what most of us do is say, but yeah, but I've done a lot of really good things, and I've done more good things than bad things. And while that in and of itself may be debatable, without you going through every detail of your life, let's just assume that's true. Have you done enough? And everybody, everybody assumes I've done enough. But what Paul teaches is that nobody can do enough. Because at whatever point you broke the law, you broke all of the law. And that's a hard concept to get. But it's like standing before a judge, and you just hit somebody with your car, and they died. And the judge says, did you kill that person with your car? And you say, yes, but I told the truth about it. And he says, oh, (laughs) you told the truth about it then. Okay, well, just go home. It's no big deal. It didn't matter that you were speeding. It didn't matter that you were drunk. It didn't matter anything else. Ah, At least you told me the truth. Now imagine standing before God one day. And he says, did you murder anybody? You say, no. Did you kidnap anybody? Uh Uh-uh. 
Well, did you rape anybody? Nope. Yes, I'm getting in. Did you gossip about anybody? Did you lie? And see, we rate our sins more good than bad. Don't do the really, really, really bad ones. Try to minimize it to just the acceptable ones. And God says, no, they're all evil. They all separate you from me, which is the ultimate goal to be connected to God. And so here's the problem. There's a way, there has to be a way to get over this. And the way is either you try harder or you surrender. And in surrender, something beautiful happens. Take a look at what Paul says. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Yes, everything else. See, he went from I once thought my good deeds, now we're at everything. Everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. Paul just went from all my good deeds to everything. Everything that this world would have to offer, I would trade it. I'd give it all up. It's just not worth it. None of it is worth it as long as I could have Jesus Christ. So at any point, your life is being tempted to turn away from him for anything, anything, throw it away. In fact, he says there, I count it all as garbage. Some of you as a child maybe memorized the NIV or some other translation of that verse. I count it all, I count it all as loss or whatever. The actual Greek word there is refuse. It's garbage. You need to picture not like, I don't know, um, maybe a, 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 you know, we have a lot of diapers in my house, you know, not like a box your diapers came in and you're throwing it out, you know, it's going to break down or they're going to recycle it at some point. You need to picture back in that day, refuse is the, literally the trash, the garbage. Things didn't come wrapped in packages. You're talking about things that are rotting and stinking. You don't leave them in your house. You can't. Picture maybe raw meat or something just horrible or gross. And you've got to get it out. And Paul's saying, I considered all of my good deeds. I consider any sin or temptation or desire that separates me from Christ. All of it is refuse. It's garbage. And if I don't throw it out, if I don't get it out, it's going to stink up the house. You get the analogy. And Paul is beckoning the church of Philippians. I mean, keep pursuing Christ in this way. Realizing there's nothing you can do. Put that verse back up there. I think it's verse 3. No, verse, verse 7, I apologize, I'm going to jump around. Put up verse 7. But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has, what's that word there? Done. In theological circles, we call this imputed righteousness. And I've mentioned that word a few times over the last year. Imputed righteousness is where on the cross, when I put my faith in him, God takes the life of Jesus and puts it in me. That's dramatically different than me trying to do enough good things to please God or look good in front of others. It's not anything I've done. It's everything he has done. See, every other way to God, every other religion out there is spelled D-O, do. You got to do this. You got to do that to make God happy, to please others, to look good. But when we look at the cross of Christ, we don't see a religion spelled D-O. We see a religion spelled D-O-N-E. It has been finished in the past. So then how do I get the done for me? We'll keep reading what Paul has to say. Pick up at verse uh, 9. 
He picks up at the end of his sentence there. So I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through what? Trying really, really hard in Christ. No, it's through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on one thing and one thing alone. Faith. Look at 10 and 11. I want to know Christ, Paul says, and I want to experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, said no one ever. Sharing in his death. So that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Some have written about this very last sentence from Paul, and they say, it's almost like Paul's not convinced he's saved. It's like Paul isn't sure, like, one way or the other. And that's not the way to read that. The best way to read this, in my opinion, is this. Paul is saying, in this life, it's hard. There are temptations that abound. Sometimes I fail. In this life, it's hard because I do hard work not to earn God's favor, but because God's favor has been poured out on me, and sometimes I fail. And I struggle constantly because in my flesh, when I'm failing or when I'm not confident, when I'm feeling insecure, I go back to trying to earn my salvation. But I don't have to do that. And because God is a good God and he's a perfect father, he knows how to bring the right discipline into my life to shape me and form me into the likeness of his son. This is why the writer in Hebrews tells us that that God disciplines those he loves. And when bad junk is happening to you, he says, consider it as discipline from the Lord. And then he goes on, the writer of Hebrews says, "And, and what father doesn't discipline his kids? Apparently he'd never interviewed fathers today. We said, what father doesn't discipline his kids? And he says, doesn't the discipline hurt for just a little while, but in the end, doesn't it produce something really good in you? And what's the point of this? When bad things happen in your life, call it sickness, call it loss of job, call it a financial woe, somebody breaks up with you, something bad happens. Instead of looking at it as uh, God punishing you because he's mad at you or God not being there, not taking care of you, view it instead as a mercy of God who wants to grow you in some way to be more like Christ. That's what Paul's saying. So either I'm going to experience the resurrection of Christ's power in this life that as I go through life and I keep getting beaten and thrown in prison and frustrated, no matter what, I'm going to keep experiencing that power because I'm going to keep pursuing him and chasing after him. Or finally, one of these jailers is going to beat me and I'm going to die. And then I'm going to be raised with Christ anyway. I win. No matter what happens, I win. You can't do anything to me that I don't win. No matter what, I win. See, Christians, I think sometimes in the American church, we're so spoiled that we don't have an I win attitude. We're so spoiled that when bad stuff happens, we wonder where God is. I do. At least that's how I feel. And Paul says, no no matter what happens, I win. I win. So I'm going to keep looking for God in every situation and just assume he's up to something. I just don't know what he's doing yet. Man, even as I'm sitting here preaching, I'm like, God, I want that attitude. I want that attitude. Look at the next verse here. Verse 12. This is amazing to me. I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection. Now, just stop. What? This is the Apostle Paul. Paul, you're either the biggest hypocrite in the world or something's up here. How can you tell us to do these things and you're saying, I'm not telling you I've gotten there. I'm telling you where I'm headed. 
I love that though. I love his humility because we don't read about Paul and it's like super apostle. We read about Paul and he's like, man, I'm a mess up. Go read Romans 7 sometimes. And like, the thing I want to do, I don't do. The thing I don't want to do, I just keep doing it. Like, I don't know what's wrong with me. But if I keep doing the thing I don't want to do, and I don't do the thing I do want to do, I know it's confusing, but this is what he says. He says, and it's not me, it's sin living in me. And then he says, who can save me from this life of sin and death? But then Romans 8, 1 starts, he says, praise be to God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it's a powerful statement from Paul that even though in the flesh he struggles, he's right with God. He's good with God because it's already been done. So what do I do? Verse 12, I press on to possess the perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. What do I do? I fix my eye on that last day, that award ceremony, where I'm going to stand on the podium because I crossed the line. I finished the race. I fought the good fight. I'm going to stand there. My crown will be all of you, Paul is saying. And many of you will be my crown as well. And I'll stand there and say, I did it. I finished the work that the master gave me to do. I stayed focused on him. I crossed the line. I'm there. I'm there. And he'll look at me and say, well done, good and faithful. Then verse 13. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing. I forget the past, and I look forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. I love, this is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible, and I know I say that every week, but it really is. I love this passage because what's Paul saying? In the past, I used to try to earn my salvation. I don't go back to that anymore. In the past, I have failed and I've struggled with sin. I don't go back to that anymore. So neither do I go back to earning my salvation, nor do I return to my sin. Instead, I stay focused on Christ with just this, this, this passion. I just keep my eyes locked on him. The other day, we were taking a family bike ride at the Avon Town Park, you know, the big like lake thing there, whatever you call that. And uh, me and the two older boys were really kind of going as fast as we could go, having a good time. And Rachel was taking the, a trailer, and she also had like a little bike. So my littlest one, he, like, he's just a little froggy leg. He's on a little bike thing, you know, and his legs are like tired. Literally, we buy him new shoes, and at the end of one of these bike rides, he has holes in his shoes. Like, I can't afford to keep shoes on this kid. And uh, so we, we get around, and I'm like, hey, why don't we trade? You can ride with the big boys, and I'll take the little one. He was worn out at this point. So he's sitting in the back of the trailer. His bike's in there with him. And we're riding around, and they're so far ahead of us. And I look at him, and I say, hey, Nehemiah, that's my youngest. Hey, Nehemiah, you want to catch your brothers? Yeah, daddy. So I may or may not have gone a little faster than um, the books that I was allowed. And we're, we're going as fast as we can. We're trying to make it around this little thing. We're catching them. And now my older boys from the other side of the lake look over and they see us gaining ground. And I can only imagine, I don't know what they said. I can only imagine them working as hard as they can with their little legs to try to stay ahead of daddy. And as I got closer, my second son is ahead of my wife, and he keeps turning back to look and see how close I am. And every once in a while, I'm you know, encouraging him, come on, Levi, look straight ahead, go, go, go. And as I'm coming up closer, he finally looks, and he sees me coming, and he pulls in front of my wife. My wife, for some unknown reason, forgets that there aren't backward brakes on her bike. So she starts spinning backwards, and she's not stopping. This all happened in a matter of seconds. She plows into him, hits his tire. He goes over the handlebars, totally scrapes up his arm, hits his shoulder on the ground, and bounces his head off the ground. Please don't call CPS. He didn't have a helmet on. 
Actually, you don't need to call him because uh, the police station was right there. My wife took the bike with the trailer, rode him over. They looked at him. The swelling was really bad. He went to the hospital. It's only like two weeks ago. They did a CT scan. Um, they found out that he has a very small brain like his daddy. I'm just kidding. No, he's fine. <laughs> he's totally fine. He's totally fine. And um, later when he had calmed down and he wasn't crying and, you know, he had his ice cream and, you know, mommy and daddy apologized, we tried to tell him, son, when you're riding your bike, when you're running a race, If you look behind you, bad things happen. See, when you look behind you, you stop paying attention to where you're going. When you look behind you, what happened was you you stop focusing on the path that God has cut out for you. And he doesn't understand all the analogies yet, but you can bet I'm not going to lose them. Next time we take a bike ride, I'm going to look at him and say, now remember, keep your eyes forward. Watch where you're going. Don't worry about what your mommy's doing. Don't worry about what your daddy is doing. Don't worry about what happened behind you. Don't worry about that acorn that was on the road that you already missed. You don't need to look back. You missed it already. You worry about the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. Guys, that's the Christian life in a nutshell right there. That's exactly what Paul is trying to get to. Because if you look back at that person in your past, wondering if maybe you should go back there, that's going to trip you up. You're going to fall and smash your head. You start looking back at the past, some mistake you made, some sin you, you, you did, you're going to end up going back there, swerving off the path. You start looking back at things that looked really good and appealing back there, you go back to trying to earn your salvation again, you're going to crash every time. This is why Jesus says, anybody who wants to follow me and put their hand to the plow cannot look back or they're not worthy to follow after me. And it's kind of a crazy farming analogy, but imagine somebody trying to dig a hole to plant some seeds in a field, and they're walking along. Now, if you turn around and look back, what's going to happen to your line? And Jesus is saying, anybody who wants to come after me needs to stay focused on what's ahead. If you're looking back and wondering if what you left was better, just go ahead back. It's not worth it anymore. So stay focused on what's in front of you. And this is where Paul concludes. Let's look at verse 17. Dear brothers and sisters, Paul says, Pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. I love that. In our culture, we would say Paul's being arrogant. I have struggled with this verse my whole life. I wrote a devotion about this recently. We handed out to a bunch of you. I struggle with this sometimes. Paul has no problem saying, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. We would look at him and say, Paul, come on now. We're not supposed to follow you. We're supposed to follow Jesus. Absolutely. I'm following him. You follow me. And then he says in that same verse, you follow others and their example who are following me too. Man, think about this for a minute. Is your life worthy to be followed? When you look at the you that only you know about, could other people pattern their life after yours? and end up where they want to be. Because if not, then what are you going to do about it? Look at the rest of what he says here. We'll, We'll close out with this. Verse 18. For I have told you often before, I say it again with tears in my eyes. It's okay for men to cry? What? That there are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. But we, 
We are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. Man, I don't know if you caught what Paul just said. So on one extreme, you've got these uh, Judaizers, for lack of a better phrase, that are telling all the, gen- or the, the Christians, you need to do these things to be saved. And Paul says, no, it's worthless, it's garbage. But then you've got another group who are using phrases like, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. I mean, why would God give me these feelings if he didn't want me to act on them? Well, it's only illegal because... Well, it's not illegal to do that, so it can't be wrong. It's not hurting anybody else. It's my bedroom. It's my body. I'll do what I want. And about a hundred other phrases that sound just like it. And in Paul's day, and no different than today, there are liars and deceivers who are tripping up the church. And people are looking at grace and going, well, it doesn't matter how I live then. And Paul's going, that's the exact opposite. I'm telling you, don't live to earn your salvation. I'm not telling you, don't live with morals. I live with morals in light of all that God has done to me. I offer my body to him because he alone is good. He alone can satisfy. And here's where I'll end. Today, there is a work being done in our country. And it is destroying our country. And here's the work. It's probably not what you think. It has to do with men. Have you ever looked at the data on men? Men who are disengaged, overworked, or not involved in their kids' lives. Do you want to know what happens? STD rates go up. Pregnancy rates go up. Alcohol abuse rates go up. Suicide rates. Go look at the data on men in uh, prisons. How many of them come from absent father homes? Did you know that there's a direct connection through studies to anorexia and bulimia and a lack of a relationship with dads? And how about this one? Long-term studies were done, and the medical field found issues like uh, uh, high blood pressure, heart issues, all these health-related issues were directly connected to an absent relationship with father. And then we look at the statistics on America today and how many men are donating their DNA, but they're not putting in their hearts, their minds, and their lives. And here's where I want to end. Ladies, I want you to hear me say very clearly, I want you to lead where you are. This isn't a message saying that you aren't important and don't have a role in God's kingdom because all of this applies to you, but I need to call out the men. And I just need to know, are there any men in this room who are going to leave here today And do whatever it takes, no matter how hard or painful or awkward it is, to be a man worth following. And if so, would you just stand right now? I keep standing, man. You don't only sit yet. Because here's what I know about men. Men cannot stand another man being called out and he didn't step up. So there's some of you standing today like, she's going to see me. I got to stand. Listen, you and God know what's in your heart. You and God know whatever you need to do when you leave here today.
You and God know whether you need to turn off that TV today and actually engage your family. You and God know if you need to put down that private sin and bring it into the light. You and God know whether or not you need to get your house in order, your finances in order, your life in order. And I believe with all my heart that God's about to meet you and tell you what you need to do next. So what I'm going to do is pray over you. And when I'm done praying, I'm going to ask our communion service to go out as I start praying. Just sneak on out quietly. And the rest of us are going to engage in communion. While you take communion, I just want you to pray, God, speak to me. Tell me what you want me to do, and I'll do it. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, for every man who just stood in this room, I pray over him right now. Give him both the desire and the power to honor you. Father, whatever you're telling them to do, may they go do it boldly and trust you. And Father, I beg you, speak right now. Open our ears, our hearts, that we might hear your voice. And God, whatever it is you say in this moment, I pray we would not shut our ears. We would not harden our hearts. We would receive it as a word from you and we would act. And God, I pray, I pray this church would be full of men who are engaged fathers and husbands and leaders in our community and in our church. In Jesus' name. Amen.